Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we are joined by Arno Michaelis. Arno is a former white supremacist and the author of My Life After Hate. He currently works with an organization called Parents for Peace. That's parents, the number four, peace.org. Parents for Peace is a non-governmental public health nonprofit that empowers families, friends, and communities to prevent radicalization, violence, and extremism. Welcome, Arno. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you, Jessica. It's my pleasure. So I think I'm going to start with what might feel like the most obvious question. You obviously, I'm in reading about you, you had a troubled childhood and home life, but not everybody who has a childhood that's troubled um, becomes a white supremacist and a major figure in that movement. How does that happen? What was your journey? Well, I, I the first point I'd make is that while I, I did have adverse childhood experiences, as they're known in, in the mental health circle, um, it, my childhood was relatively idyllic. I lived in a nice house, nice neighborhood. My parents were together. They loved me very much. But my father's drinking put a lot of pressure on my mother to support our nice house in a nice neighborhood. Sometimes she's working two jobs and uh, their relationship sucked. They, they were constantly fighting, uh, constant financial stress. And I, the whole time I was growing up, I could see my mother suffering and, and it hurt me. And rather than be a good kid and be like, hey, mom, I love you. How can I help? I just started to distance myself from her and distance myself from my father, who despite the disease he had, was doing the best he could. And of course, that made my suffering worse. So to your point, there's a billions of people on this planet who've had much worse childhoods than I have, and, and very few of them uh, went into violent extremism of any sort. But I, I think it's really kind of a perfect storm thing where my personality type uh, combined with the environment I grew up in or what led me to white nationalism. And, and the way I describe it is like when I was hurting as a kid, I started lashing out at society, hurt people, hurt people. And, and of course not all hurt people, hurt people, or we'd be in really big trouble because I'm a Buddhist nowadays and, and life is suffering as Buddhism 101. Um, but when you don't have a healthy way to process that trauma you're going through, that's when it gets passed on to other people. And so I, I developed a, an addiction to that thrill of lashing out and of repulsing people from a very young age. And I needed to keep escalating the antisocial behavior to, to get the, the high I was looking for. So I went from being a bully on the school bus to fights in the schoolyard to breaking and entering, vandalism, started drinking myself when I was 14. And by the time I was 16, I was a full-blown alcoholic. I was very familiar with violence. Uh, hate was just another part of the thrill. And that's when I was exposed to white nationalism via white power skinhead music. So I, I want to pick up on something you just said. You said, you know, because of my personality type, because of how I handled this, I was lashing out. I was engaging in antisocial behavior. And then you said hate became part of the thrill. There's a lot of people who again, have less than perfect childhoods who then will engage in 
antisocial and or criminal behavior, but they don't cross that line into hate. They don't cross that line into white nationalism. Can you describe for us what that thrill was? Yeah, it's essentially when you don't have a, a positive image of yourself, when, when you don't have a, a sense of inner peace, you don't have a, an idea of your own value, you don't feel like you're worthy of being loved, you, you still have this drive to be like important, to be meaningful, to, to have some kind of value. And, and what hate is, is it's a, a false answer to that. In the same way that an alcoholic, which I am an alcoholic, so I have firsthand experience with that, an alcoholic might uh, turn to, to booze in order to escape the, the challenges and the trauma of everyday life. Uh, when you're addicted to hate, you, you, you seek out that, the dynamic of a, of a hateful ideology. So in white nationalism, I wasn't just some kid with all these problems. I became a white warrior fighting for my people against this evil plot to kill all the white people on the planet Earth. And it, I mean, I hope that sounds ridiculous, but to a drunken 16-year-old, it was, it was quite seductive. It was literally music to my ears. And so it's, it's a false way to establish value for yourself. It's a false way to uh, establish your importance. I, I'm so important. I'm fighting for my people. Well, when actually, I'm just trying to mask my my own inner turmoil. So, what I hear you saying is that hate becomes. You said you use the word thrill. Hate becomes part of the thrill. Hate makes you feel important. You use the words value and importance. So, was that your identity then at that moment? Is that why the lashing out, the antisocial behavior? moves into behavior that's really, really harmful, hateful, counterproductive, I think, you know, disgusting, degrading, we can keep going on this, but is it that it gave you an identity of I belong and I'm worth something? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I point out, it should go without saying, but like at the time I didn't realize all this, all these things happening. I, like my, my take on it now is like Monday morning psychoanalysis. I'm looking back at my childhood, trying to like make sense of it and, and put a finger on what went wrong. And, and I think that that is what happened. I, I've been working in counterviolent extremism internationally since uh, 2010. So over a decade, and, and I think a common thread is when people get involved in violent extremism of any sort, whether we're talking about the so-called Islamic State or we're talking about Antifa or we're talking about white nationalism, it, it's, a, it's a need for identity, purpose, and belonging. And that's a common need that we all have. Fortunately, most people find healthy answers to those needs, whether it's a, a great family or faith or uh, academics or arts, you know, music, whatever. If you don't have a healthy answer to those needs, there are all sorts of unhealthy answers out there waiting to swoop in, of which white nationalism is just one of them. So white nationalism, you describe as kind of, it almost sounds like you were waiting for it and it was waiting for you. And you said this was music to my ears. Can you describe for people like me who this is blissfully foreign how do you go from 
let's kindly say a schoolyard bully to a major player in white nationalism. Yeah, a good way to describe it is, so before I, I got to be a white nationalist skinhead, I was a punk rocker. And I, I still love punk rock. I, I love the music, love the scene. I, I love the idea of not conforming, of, of questioning authority, thinking for yourself. Uh, those are all very healthy things, I believe, for individual and, and for society. But uh, punk is a pretty big tent thing. And, and within the big tent of punk, there's people who are very much activists, like, like it's very popularized today. And then there's there's guys, when I was a punk rocker, I was just about breaking things. I, I just wanted to smash things and rebel and, and repulse people. And for that reason, I had a mohawk hairdo before I shaved my head and became a skinhead. And nowadays, mohawks are pretty passe. It's, it's like worn itself out. It's not a big deal. But in the late 1980s, when you walked around the streets of Milwaukee with a mohawk hairdo, like people were shocked. That people would sometimes want to start fights with you because you look so outlandish. Well, if you think a mohawk pisses people off, try a swastika. Swastikas really piss people off. So if, if, if you're looking for the ultimate way to piss people off, there, there is really nothing that does that better than a swastika. And I wasn't ignorant as to why. I, I was aware of the Holocaust. I was aware of, of the, the history behind the swastika and why people were so repulsed by it. But again, going back to the addiction analogy, I've known people who were recovering heroin addicts who during their addiction would steal things to support their habit or sometimes even prostitute themselves. And they didn't feel good about either of those things. They knew they were wrong, but they didn't care as long as they got their fix. And that's, that was kind of like my relationship with the swastika. I knew why it was so repulsive, but I didn't care because I, I just wanted that thrill of repulsing people. So a couple of questions out of that. I mean, you're almost describing white nationalism like a disease akin to alcoholism or drug addiction. You've made a couple of comparisons. Is that how you think we should think about white nationalism and hate, that it's a disease like alcoholism or like heroin addiction? Absolutely. And, and uh, we, we mentioned Parents for Peace and, and Parents for Peace has so many assets going for it that it is the reason why I chose that as the organization I do intervention work with. But first and foremost is that they look at violent extremism as a public health issue and, and not as like a political hot potato to kick around uh, if, if you look at the, the political polls polarizing our society, you'll see that the far right is all about, the, you know, anytime the, uh, a so-called Muslim, you know, a, a terrorist in Islamic clothing makes a, an attack, they're all about, oh, look at all these Muslim terrorists, Muslim terrorists, blah, blah, blah. And they want to sweep white nationalism under the rug. They, they don't say anything about that. That's all, oh, well, that's just that one guy was messed up. On the left, you see the exact opposite response. Everybody's a neo-Nazi. The neo-Nazis are the biggest threat. Uh, if there is an attack by a terrorist in Islamic clothing, it has nothing to do with with uh, anything. Yeah, that's a you know they they brush that under the rug. And I think that that politicizing violent extremism is incredibly harmful. It it serves the the narratives and the objectives of of all sorts of violent extremist groups. 
And it doesn't solve the problem, which is you have an individual who has lived through trauma that they haven't been able to process. And that trauma is leading them to adopt these violent extremist narratives, as you pointed out, as their identity. They adopt an ideology as their identity because they don't have a healthy identity of their own. And that's a that's a spiritual issue. It's it's a mental health issue. It's it's not something that we should hate people for. And and I would point out when I was a white nationalist, I wanted people to hate me. I to the I wanted people to swing at me. Like I was constantly trying to provoke violence. So when people are like, "Oh, go punch a Nazi," and we you know hate like you can hate Nazis out of existence somehow, you're you're playing their game. You're you're playing by their rules, and and it's. It's very ill-advised to, to play by your opponent's rules if you want to prevail in any kind of conflict. There's so many things I wanted to pick up on. One, I just want to note for the listeners, I, I don't necessarily share your view of kind of how the right and the left respond, but you just said something that I want to hear you talk more about. You said you're, they're playing by the opponent's rules. So what should people do then? What got me to leave white nationalism behind was very brave people who rather than reflect that my hostility as I was trying to provoke, they treated me with kindness and they treated me with compassion. And in order to do that, they had to forgive me. And and they weaponized these most noble aspects of our human existence, kindness, compassion, forgiveness, which blew all the nonsense I was trying to believe out of the water. That, that is what changed me. That's what brought me from a place where I attacked people on site because of the color of their skin to today where I've spent 11 years now uh, working to prevent people from joining violent extremist groups of all sorts and helping the, to pull people out of those groups who had, had actually joined them. So if you look at accomplishing an objective, the, the people who treated me with kindness were essentially dictating the rules of engagement in our interaction. They, they weren't letting me dictate the rules. They were saying, look, I'm not playing by your rules of hate and aggression and hostility. You're going to play by my rules of kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. And this is how human beings should treat each other. This is what life could be like if you just let go of all this nonsense you're trying to believe. And that is effective because I, I know it firsthand. I wouldn't be here talking to you if that wasn't effective. And I've seen over and over and over and over again in the past 11 years I've been doing this work that those elements of, of our human existence are, are required to actually put a dent in hate and violence. Um, you're, you're not going to beat the Nazi out of anybody. You're not going to punish racism out of our society in the same way you're not going to punish alcoholism out of our society. So yes, I, I do maintain that there is a, a direct parallel between violent extremist ideologies and addiction and, and that we need to treat it that way. So do people who are violent extremists then I mean, should we view this as you said we should view it as a public health crisis? And it seems to me for the victims, it absolutely is a public health crisis. But should we have, you know, a place on insurance forms where you can 
People can go into treatment for alcoholism or for drug abuse or for violent extremism. Is that really the paradigm that we should put this under? Absolutely. If we want to be successful, if we want to reduce the amount of violent extremism in our society, yes, that's absolutely what we want to do. And and I I would point out that it, to to uh, doing so does not uh, dishonor the the victims of hate. But one of my closest friends is a man named Pardeep Kalika, whose father was murdered by a man who who came from the skinhead gang that I helped to start, along with six other people, in a in a targeted white nationalist attack. And Party points out that to him, forgiveness is vengeance. It, it's not capitulation. It's not saying, oh, that's okay. You know, we're, we're over it. It's saying, you are not going to destroy me. You are not going to take one ounce of time and energy from me that I need for my four children so I can be their father, that I need for my wife so I can be her husband, that I need for my widowed mother so that I can be her son. That, that's the power of forgiveness. It, it's, a, it's definitely a position of power, and I, it breaks my heart to see uh, well-meaning people shun forgiveness and shun kindness, like it's some kind of capitulation against hate and violence, when actually it's, it's the greatest weapon you can wield. So forgiveness is something that not only frees the victim, but it's also the way out for the perpetrator. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I, it, it's been a long journey for me, and it, and it always will be. And, and it should be. Like I've, I've done horrible things, Jessica. I, there, there's, I don't want to sugarcoat that. I've done things that should haunt me till my grave, and they will. But I, I'm constantly working on a journey of self-forgiveness because – just like Pardeep as a target of hate, if I'm hating myself for the harm that I've committed, I, I can't be a good parent to my daughter. I, I can't be a good son to my mom and dad. And I can't be a good member of society. And I certainly can't help people get out of hate groups and prevent them from joining hate groups if I'm hating myself for the harm that I've done. That doesn't mean the harm I've done is okay. It means if I want to honor the, the people who I harmed, I have to work to uh, attain a society where all people are valued and included. And I, I can't do that by beating myself up or by beating up anyone else, by, by hating people who, who, who hate, because that, that, that doesn't serve the, my objective. What do you say to people who say, look, I, I understand it takes a lot of my energy to be angry, but some things are worth anger and some things are really atrocious and you don't deserve my forgiveness. And that's my decision to make. I'm not trying to personalize this, but that, you know, that's right. a person's decision to make. And I, I'm not comfortable taking the forgiveness route. I'm comfortable where I'm going to hold on to that anger. Is that that person's individual choice? Absolutely. Yeah. Forgiveness is never a prescriptive thing. I, I would never say, and I am part of a group called the Forgiveness Project. I, I highly recommend people visit theforgivenessproject.com. It's hundreds and hundreds of stories of forgiveness from all over the world, from every type of situation you can imagine. And the, the mission of the Forgiveness Project is simply to tell those stories. It's not to say like, hey, 
you who was wrong, you should forgive. Because you're, you're absolutely right. That is someone's personal journey. But when you hear a story of forgiveness, and, and there's stories in this project that can, there, there's stories of people being targeted because of their sexuality or their skin color. And so any kind of scenario you can think of, there are stories of people who have not only survived this trauma because of forgiveness, but have walked through the trauma to put themselves in a place where they can help other people. Now, that can't happen if you're stewing in anger. And, and, and I, by no means am I suggesting that no one should be angry. Uh, there, there is great wisdom in anger. If, if we sit with that anger and, and ask ourselves why we're feeling it, and, and we can use that anger to, to drive discipline and to drive activism that can make the world a better place, but we can't let that anger lead us by the nose. When that happens, the logical conclusion is, is you just get in a, a cycle of violence. You're not going to build anything beautiful with anger. You're not going to make anything beautiful happen with hate. I, I've heard people say, like, I don't hate white people. I hate white supremacy. And I'm like, okay, well, good luck hating white supremacy out of existence because hate is bread and butter to white supremacy. You're not going to out-hate it. I, I, I consider myself a feminist, and, and I say that because I feel there's a, in a healthy individual, in a healthy society, there's a balance of masculine and feminine energies, and our society is completely out of whack, and it has been for a very long time, of, of masculine outweighing feminine. And at the same time, I, I see all sorts of people who call themselves feminists going around going, smash the patriarchy, and like just like radiating hostility and aggression. And I'm like, oh, so you want to out-aggro the patriarchy. Like, good luck with that. That that uh, you know, I don't think that's a plan for victory. If if you're you're again playing by your opponent's rules is is never a great idea. It seems like you're making a very pragmatic argument for forgiveness in the sense of if you really want to achieve your goals. I mean, I feel like we're looking at this chessboard, and you're saying, "I'm going to tell you how to say checkmate," and it's. It's forgiveness. It's not holding on to the anger, uh, which is different from talking about forgiveness as something, well, it's different from talking about it as other than a pragmatic solution. Is that something that you talk about, argue? Is that a correct assessment of what you're saying? Yeah, that's a brilliant way to put it. It's absolutely a chess match. I I, a lot of my intervention work, um, the majority of it actually, if I'm talking to like Joe pissed off clan member, white guy, um, the odds are very good that they're going to be military veterans. Now, I've never served in, in the military. I, I was, you know, I like to fashion myself as a paramilitary back in the day. I crawled through the woods with guns and stuff like that. But um, working with someone in the military, who's a veteran, it, I, I need to think in like military terms. I need to be tactical. I, I need to be strategic. There's an objective I want to accomplish. What are the assets I have to deploy that will put me in a position to accomplish that objective? Forgiveness is one of those assets. Compassion is one of those assets. Kindness is one of those assets. So I, I'm talking about using all those noble human qualities in a tactical way to accomplish an objective. 
it, it's and, and it, a lot of people it, and especially the, the the more you're traumatized and the more hurt you're going through the less you want to oh you're know, like i'm not I, i'm not talking about your kumbaya forgiveness kindness stuff i'm done done with that I, i'm i'm angry i, I i'm gonna make something happen here well I, I don't blame anyone for feeling that way, but I, I will say all day long that I don't think it's going to be a very effective approach, not to accomplish their objective of making society less hateful and, and certainly not for the, their own sake of uh, going forward and, and uh, trying to proceed with their lives when, when they're stewing in, in anger and hate, no matter how righteous it is. There's a, the phrase the hate that hate made came out of like the black Panther era. And um, it, it's very profound to think about it. But again, whether the hate was made by hate or not, it it's, remains hate it, and it's not going to do um, it, the individual feeling that hatred any good. It is not going to do our society any good. Let me take one more, um, try and peel one more layer off of this. And then there's so many other topics I want to get to with you. It, seems to me that there are some actions. There are some people who've taken actions where I'll just speak for myself. I can't imagine actually forgiving. I can imagine saying I need to not live with daily anger and I don't want to be a violent person, but it feels like there is a middle ground between you. I think you just use the phrase stewing and anger and forgiveness. It seems like those are two ends to the spectrum. Do you agree that there can be a place where, you know, I might say, look, that is unforgivable behavior. I have a goal and I only have so much energy in life. So I'm going to work towards that goal and I'm not going to be a violent person. And I'm going to strategically find the best way to try and achieve that goal. But I'm not at forgiveness. I don't think that this person or that action deserves forgiveness. Is that a place where you think we can still be successful or is it more binary for you? Is it anger or forgiveness? No, I, you, you make a great point. It's not binary by any stretch. And, and it should be pointed out that forgiveness is a different thing to every individual who experiences it. it it's going to happen in a different way. I, I have a dear friend named Sharon Risher. Her Sharon's mother, Ethel Lance, was murdered along with eight other people by Dylan Roof at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, as many people can remember, days after Roof was apprehended and he's he's being arraigned in court, there was a woman who jumped up and said, I forgive you. And, and that caused all sorts of ripples and shock in our society as it should because it was a very radical act well that woman was sharon's sister and sharon who who's, was trained as a pastor she's she's a christian minister at the time she was like what the hell are you doing how dare you how dare you forgive this this broken sick man who murdered our mother and and it took sharon years to reach a point where she could even think about forgiveness. So that, that, that journey is absolutely an individual journey. It, it never looks the same from person to person, but ultimately Sharon did reach a spot in her life where she felt God had told her 
like Sharon, you've done the work. You, you've walked this journey. It's now time on your path to, to forgive the, this broken, messed up kid. And that doesn't mean she's not angry still. It, do, it doesn't mean she, she, uh, she's a big fan of Dylan Roof. Um, but, but it does mean that, that she's no longer consumed by that anger and that pain in her heart. And, and as Sharon puts it, she feels that uh, it, it's really the ultimate way to honor her mother. And, and the eight other people that were murdered that day. And, and in my experience, it is the ultimate defiance of everything Dylan Roof was trying to do. Dylan Roof specifically chose Emmanuel Emmy Church because it's a historic black church, and he wanted to, to trigger a race war. That's why he chose that church. So when the, the people that he's trying to provoke hate and violence from say, no, you know what? I forgive you. That is the ultimate defiance of, of what he's trying to do. And, and, and again, tactically it's a, yeah, you don't, you're not accomplishing your objective, buddy, but I'm accomplishing mine. So that's a place of power and we, we shouldn't lose sight of that. It's so interesting. I didn't expect it, but I feel like we're playing a game of, you know, how, if we have three dimensional chess, how do we best get to, this outcome. And I, I want to ask you now about your current work and how best to get to certain outcomes. And one thing I'm curious about, because honestly, I'm thinking about this with respect to vaccine hesitancy and how to reach people uh, who are reticent to get the vaccine or so many other areas, which is, do you have more ability to speak to people who are white supremacists, who are in violent situations and hateful situations because of your background? Do you have a more pull with them because you can say, this is who I used to be? Or does that not add that much in the sense that can anybody with the right tools walk in there? Or does it really have to be somebody who can say, I was in your shoes. Let me speak to you. I think anyone can change anyone else's life. When I talk about these acts of kindness I experienced that changed the course of my life, uh, they came from people like a Jewish boss and a lesbian supervisor and black and Latino coworkers. In one case, it was an elderly black woman behind the counter at McDonald's who, rather than shun me upon seeing a swastika tattooed on my middle finger, she said, hey, you're a better person than that. I, I, I know that's not who you are. So I, 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 I absolutely believe that any individual can be the catalyst to change another human being's life. And at the same time, yes, because of my experience, I can go to someone in the Ku Klux Klan and say, hey, man, I've been where you are. I spent seven years there. I've said and thought and acted in every way that you sit, talk and sit and think and, and act. And, and there's nothing you can tell me in, in about your ideology that I, I not only don't know, but that I didn't evangelize. Uh, to degrees of success, you know, in, in that environment. And then I challenge him. I say, you haven't lived my life. I, I travel the world now and I go everywhere that, that you're terrified to go. I go to places where I'm the only white person for miles around. And I love every minute of it. I, I, I go to all ends of the earth and I see family in, in every human being. And, and all that's changed is the lens that I look at the world through. 
And and when I realize that I'm I'm in control of that lens, and I'm the I'm the the craftsman who decides what that re- lens resolves and what it doesn't, now I can say I I I choose to live seeing that more that human beings have more in common than than different and that that common humanity is a foundation from which we can build anything and address any challenge and and that life is a, a beautiful process to be grateful for at every any given moment um and and when i put this on someone and i i do take them literally with me uh that they very rarely go back uh, when you when you live a, when you can live a life now where you're not terrified of all the other human beings on earth it, it's not something that uh, you, you can just lightly dismiss once you've done it I was going to ask you a different question but you just use the word terrified twice to describe people who are involved in extremism and hate and this is something that I've thought about for a long time you said I go places you're you're terrified to go. I've found that you know we have more in common than we have than differences. How much of hate is fear and ignorance? All of it. <laughs> you, 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 you can't get yourself whipped up to the point where you're ready to walk into a place of worship and start murdering people without being terrified. All all violent extremist narratives, whether you're talking about violent Islamism, or you're talking about white nationalism, or you're talking about Antifa. It's all about what whoever your opponent is, whoever the bad guy is, they hold this tremendous power that threatens you and your in-group and everything that's good, and they lurk around every corner and around under every rock, and, and, and you're constantly uh, immersing yourself in an echo chamber that tells you that 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That, that's how violent extremism works. So if you're not terrified, you can't be a violent extremist. If more violent extremists knew people who looked differently, who act differently, how much difference does pure exposure make? This is almost a... a in a stereotype, but the idea of, I'm thinking about the LGBTQ movement where it has moved so quickly in comparison to other movements from a place where a lot of people hold very discriminatory views to the idea that it's just not tolerable to have a view that members of the LGBT community are entitled to anything less than equality when it comes to everything. And part of what I here is that because more people can be open about their preferences and their identities, that we realize that we just know a lot more people who are part of the LGBT community. And that changes our perception. Like, oh, I didn't know my accountant, my lawyer, my doctor, my friend down the street, my pharmacist, you know, name the person. I didn't know that person was gay oh, maybe there's actually nothing to be scared of here, which again, loops back to how much of this is about ignorance, about not knowing people who look different, or is are a lot of extremists familiar with people who look different? I don't think exposure is a, is a silver bullet, and, and there is no silver bullet. I think the closest thing to a silver bullet would be kindness, forgiveness, and, and compassion. But uh, exposure is important. 
But it's also important to understand that exposure doesn't necessarily mean connection, i.e. There, there are white police officers who work all day long in, in inner city where nothing but black people live. And so they have constant exposure all day, every day. But if they don't connect with those people that they serve as their fellow human beings and as individuals, most importantly, is, is to say, well, that's, you know, Bob Johnson. It's not just like Joe Black guy. Um, if you don't have that individual connection with someone who might look different than you, the, the, the exposure is not necessarily going to do a lot of good. But, but exposure is step one. I mean, obviously, if you're not like within physical proximity of, of people who don't look like you, it's very hard to connect with them. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking about like Supreme Court justices and how when it comes to rights for members of minority communities, people are looking at their background. Do they have a niece who's gay? Do they have a uncle who is transgender? And we're all trying to kind of suss out based on their who they know and their connection to that person, will they have a different worldview? I'm in no way making an analogy between Supreme Court justices and those who engage in violent extremism in no way whatsoever. I'm just making a, a broader point about having a society that's um, more interconnected. And you've now mentioned a couple of times, you know, you've, you've traveled the world, that you've talked to people about giving them basically an off-ramp, about giving them an exit strategy for violent extremism. In I think the first question I have on this is how much of this work needs to be done one-on-one versus you and a group? I mean, how much of it, and again, maybe a bad analogy, but I'm thinking about um, how to get voters registered and energized. And we've heard from a lot of successful organizers, it's really one-on-one that or it's small groups is that true for also trying to get people out of violent extremism i definitely say it is i i really believe that uh human beings are we're tribal creatures that's just like how we're wired we 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 want to tribe up like that's just i don't think there's any getting around that but what, what I've done in my life is like, I realized again, just in the same way I, I decide what the lens I view through the, the world is, I also decide who my tribe is. And so I, I, I've now, I'm at the point where like my tribe is, is humanity. And, and yeah, the color of my skin puts me in one tribe according to society and, and my uh, gender puts me in another one and my sexual orientation puts me in another one. I, I, I'm not ignorant of that, but it's really up to me to choose like how important those tribes are. And um, I, I think we were talking in, so yeah, the individual connection, if I'm talking to, to someone in the Ku Klux Klan and I'm trying to get them out and I can get them, get that across to them that, that they have power and they, most importantly, they have value because of who they are as an individual, not because of what tribe they were born into, but, but their own individual value as a human being is, is really what's most important. That's really where the gears start to turn. And, and I do think as a society, we can't lose sight of that. Um, I, I believe right now we are to a fault um, constructing social constructs that have been used to, to brutalize people for five centuries. 
um, namely race. Like race was created by racists to perpetrate racism. Yet there's all sorts of people nowadays who seem to think that race is somehow a, a solution to racism. And then they scratch their head and they wonder why white nationalists are coming out of the woodwork as, as they're, out, they're out here racializing everyone. So we, we need to understand these tribal dynamics and, and just be mindful not to exacerbate them and, and to, to dump gas on, on the fires that have been burning for a very long time. So I think you just led us to our last big question. You said white nationalists are coming out of the woodwork. And I'd love to get your perspective on what we're seeing in society right now. And I want to be careful about how I phrase this, but um, there were people who stormed the U.S. Capitol with Confederate flags. And do you see now a recent growth in white nationalism? And from your perspective, what are the factors that we can attribute to that growth if there is a growth? The, the first thing to understand is, is we want to understand terrorism. And, and white nationalists are terrorists, just like the so-called Islamic State are. They're, let's not mince words there. But obviously the objective of a terrorist is to create terror. And, and in military terms, terrorism is what's called a, a force multiplier. It's a way for a, a much smaller number of people to not only influence, but like dictate engagement to an exponentially larger amount of people. 9-11 is a perfect example of that. You got 19 guys who changed the way this entire world functions ever since. And, and that, that's, that's, a, that's what terrorism accomplishes. So we need to understand that terrorists want you to be afraid. They want you to believe that they are lurking around every corner and that they are under, lurking under every rock. So when we talk about white nationalism, we want to be very careful that we're not uh, accomplishing those objectives for them. White nationalists claim to speak for all white people. That's what I claimed when I was a white nationalist. These insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol building and murdered a police officer and had, had planned on murdering uh, politicians, they claim to speak for, certainly they claim to speak for all Americans. And, and yes, many of them claim to speak for all white people. And so we got to make the point, they don't. They don't speak for all white people by any stretch of the imagination. So that needs to be first and foremost in any discussion of white nationalism. But to, to further th this point, I would just talk about how I used to recruit Joe pissed off white kid into my skinhead gang in 1987. The, the first step is I need that kid to identify himself as white. And what, what a lot of people lose sight of is that in the late 1980s, most people racialized as white didn't necessarily identify themselves as white. And so that it made things challenging for a white nationalist. If, if this kid won't identify as white, I'm at a dead end. I, I, if he doesn't take that step, I can't take him on the next step. So that's step one. Step two is once I've got him to identify as a white man, then I need him to feel persecuted for it. I need to feel like he's actually the oppressed and not the oppressor. 
and and I would point out that there's all sorts of historical myopia involved. And and one of the tactics we would use back then is we would say, "Hey, why is there black in entertainment television and there's no white entertainment television? Like that's unfair. That's why you know we're oppressed just because of the color of our skin." Well, the answer to that question is television has always been white entertainment television from like day one. But what, if you can like not acknowledge that fact, now you can you can pitch this this uh, perceived injustice is something to really like make someone angry and make someone feel persecuted. Well, today, because of the the prevalence of a a very toxic ideology called critical race theory, white people from elementary school kids to people in college to, to professionals at big companies are being, first of all, told that they are white. They're, they're, that is your identity. You are white. And second of all, they're being told that they have privilege that everyone else doesn't have and that they are oppressors and that they are fragile and that there's all these things wrong with them. So the, what, what's happening now is the exact same approach I use to recruit white nationalists has now been, it, it's normalized in our society. Robin D'Angelo lectured uh, the author of, of White Fragility, which is like the God's gift to white nationalists. They're making all sorts of hay over that. She lectured the, the, the Congress of the United States of America about their whiteness and their privilege. So like the, 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 to me, when, when people are doing this and we're doing it at the highest levels and, and at this ridiculous scale, and white nationalists are coming out of the woodwork. To me, it's it's a very simple dot to connect, and and I understand that's not a comfortable thing to hear for people who think that race is some sort of solution to racism. But from my experience, that that's my take on it. So, last question then, from your experience, for people who are listening to this podcast, thinking, um, I don't have your life experience, but I would like to help make this a society where we have fewer white nationalists, where we have fewer skinheads and neo-Nazis, what can an individual person do? I, I think the, what's very important is, is to adopt that public health approach to this and to, to look at people. Our, our enemy is hate, not the people who are stricken with the disease of hate. Just like our, you know, our enemy is cancer. It's not people who have cancer, and and there are times when people volunteer for cancer. You smoke cigarettes all your life, and you know you get cancer, things like that. Um, so so we have to remind ourselves that our opponents are these hateful ideologies, and not the people who are stricken with them. That is the greatest blow you can deal to these ideologies. That that is the way that you you crumble all of the the narrative that they're based in so if, if you want to prevail we need to look at things that way and i get it's difficult it's it's and it's difficult for me on my own level i i have the hardest time i talk about compassion all the time but the people i have the hardest time finding compassion for are people who are like i used to be because it, it's very uncomfortable to have my nose rubbed in, in who i was 30 years ago uh, but at the same time, I, my experience 30 years ago reminds me that this is what I got to do to be successful, is I got to have compassion for people who don't deserve a, a, a lick of it. Uh, that, and, and when people are like, well, I, you know, that's too difficult. I don't want to do that. 
okay, I get it, but but you know, I'm a big hockey fan. If if people can play sixteen, uh, win sixteen games in four seven round series of hockey to win the Stanley Cup without any cartilage in their knee, but someone who's interested in in ending racism says, yeah, that's too hard to have compassion for a Nazi, so I'm not going to do it. Then I, I, you know, if you don't have the commitment that a professional athlete has to win a championship, then I don't think you're, you're taking this, uh, this conflict very seriously. And is the same true if you have a member of your family who's a white nationalist? I mean, is it, do you employ the same approach? Yeah, absolutely. It's, and it's all the more challenging then um, in the exact same way that you, you have a member of your family who's an alcoholic. Like now you are directly affected by this and, and your day-to-day life is, is being poisoned by this addiction and by this ideology. But it, it's, it, it's all the more important to let that person know that you love them no matter what, even, even if the way they think and act uh, disgusts you. And and I w- I would go back to what this very wise woman at McDonald's told me is is just to say hey I know you're a better person than that like that's that's not who you are and and find that 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 part of that human being that that wants to do good and that wants to have a, a positive effect on society which believe it or not and as twisted as it is much violent extremist ideology is driven by a twisted sense of altruism. I, I wanted to save the white race. Uh, you know, the ISIS claims that they're fighting for all Muslims on the planet against Islamophobia and against all this hate. So it, it's people who want to have a positive effect in society. You just have to like, you know, just say, well, this is, then you need to serve other people. And, and you do that from a, a place of humility and, and openness rather than a place of uh, rigidity and, and domination. And, and once that's why uh, service is such a very powerful aspect of this also. I, I've taken clan members to Los Angeles and, and fed 400 homeless people dinner in an evening. And, and that had way more of an impact than, uh, you know, lecturing them about their privilege or anything like that ever would. I think that is a perfect note to end on, even though I could continue this conversation for hours. Arno Michaelis, thank you for passing judgment with us. Thank you, Jessica. I really enjoyed our conversation. Arno is a former white supremacist and the author of My Life After Hate. He works with Parents for Peace, parents, the number four, peace.org. We thank everyone for listening. This You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Passing Judgment Pod, and we wish everybody a good day, and we will talk to you soon.